Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 49. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Good day to you, Dr. Woolman. And a wonderful day to you, Christina. How are you? Great. It's the, ugh, these, I have to say, it's like spring is in the air this morning here in LA. We went for our morning mile and the birds were chirping, the hummingbirds were singing. It was magnificent. <laughs> I think we're going to break into song and dance here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's be been so cold. And then suddenly to have this glorious morning, it's just fabulous to wake up to. I know. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host, along with Christina, as we spend another week in the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. Yeah, spring is in the air, uh, and uh, I like that. But I think it's confusing to all my plants and flowers and everything. You know, you get spring, and then another winter comes, and then spring comes, and then the flowers seem to not know what to do. Oh, I, it, it's been a really rough year. It's I, I have not seen a year quite like this uh, in the 20 years I've been here. And I, I know in the farmer's market this last uh, weekend, we were talking about it. The poor farmers, I mean, their crops are really suffering right now. It's interesting to be someone who is so uh, much a part of weather and conditions and environment mm -hmm. as the farmers are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have to pay a lot of attention to that. Mm. Christina, special yes. show today. Mm -hmm. Special show today. I have a long, long time friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Richard Goldman, who will be speaking with, with us today and having a conversation. He has a great story. Started mm -hmm. out in uh, taking his residency in family practice and then went into emergency medicine. And then... He's one uh, of you. He's one of us. Yeah. He's one, <laughs> one of the peeps. So, well, we might have some good stories there to look at. But he, but he, like many other people and part of what we talk about on the show of different variations on a theme and different places you can go within the medical field. He went on to palliative care. Those of you that may have heard the term and don't know what it is will learn a lot today, I'm sure. So I think I would rather than just chat a little more, I'd like to get right to uh, talking with Richard mm. and introduce him to our uh, global audience and to you. How are you today? I'm, I'm well, I'm, I'm, and I'm, you know, hearing you introduce me and going back to all our years, I, I have to, you know, much like you do when you do a medical talk, you give disclaimers to the different <laughs> companies that are, you know, supporting you. I, um, whatever things I may have to say, I, I have to, you know, refer back to our relationship that goes back 50 years. We were in junior high school together and... And so I think the audience should know that uh, this is more than just, certainly for me, you know, more than just a professional uh, discussion we're having. It's, uh, it's, it's just very uh, gratifying and, and exciting to share your new part in your life, your professional life, you know, as a medical guide and to be able to be part of that after you know, this long relationship we've had is very exciting. Oh, so thanks for, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah well, we've, we've actually done uh, all of it together, junior high school, high school, college, medical school. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, medical yeah. school as well. Medical yeah, medical school, school as well. Wow. That's right. 
<laughs> and you're still friends. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, you know, it's interesting. There was a whole group of us that uh, met early on. Uh, I came in a little later than a lot of the uh, friends, but there was a whole group of people that they're just. A, it was a great group of people. All were oriented toward uh, enjoying life, uh, having fun, but being professional and having careers. And we all supported each other and uh, took care of each other through all of that process. That's but, right. Uh, yeah. So that part of it, I think, was really great. We we love that. Uh, Richard, usually what I do as the medical guide is I give our uh, viewing audience a opportunity to have an idea of where I think I'm going with the show. But as you said, uh, we don't know where we'll go today since we have so many possibilities that can be uh, brought up. But I'd like to start out where we talk about just your, uh, your journey, how you got into medicine, why you decided to become a healer, where that happened, when it happened, and then through some of the uh, programs that you went through, and then to where you are today. We also want to talk about uh, some stories and some palliative care issues and give people a lot of information in that area. Does that sound okay to you? That sounds like a great idea. Okay, so from that point of view, let's start from the beginning and give us an idea of where you started, what got you into medicine. Take us up at least through the emergency department, and then maybe we'll work our way into palliative care. Okay, well, just to echo what you said, uh, when we were in college, you know, we were a close-knit group of friends. There were about six of us. We lived right near each other in the dorms, and I went to college with the idea of becoming an English major and an English teacher, and you <laughs> and many other of the close friends were actually taking pre-medical and pre-dental courses, and being at that time not wanting to be left out, I signed up along with it too and started taking the <laughs> chemistries and the physiology classes, and actually went along with it. I'd like to be able to say that, you know, I wanted to be a doctor as Glenn did, I recall, ever since I remember him. He always wanted to be a doctor, but that was not the case for myself. However, as we went along, it was very challenging, and, uh, you know, the time came, and I did apply to medical school and went off uh, to medical school and have no regrets whatsoever for the the guidance and the, the encouragement and the motivation that was supplied by, you know, this, these, these friends we had. And I look back, there were six of us that were relatively close that first year in college. And four of us have gone on to be, three of us are physicians, one is a dentist. So um, that, mm. that path was uh, really uh, very interesting for, for all of us. So that's how I became a uh, interested in medicine. It was my peer group, the peer group pressure. And uh, <laughs> I succumbed to it, but I'm very happy I did. So uh, I went off to medical school and uh, and then did a family practice residency. Uh, and then because it was a means of getting out there and, and, and having a certain amount of freedom, emergency medicine at that time offered that. I wasn't married. Uh, at the time, uh, uh, and emergency medicine provided the opportunity to 
be very much engaged in, in an, a very dramatic and exciting part of medicine. And it also provided an opportunity to have time to travel, to ski, to do different things. So it, it just really fit very well uh, into my life uh, when I was younger. And emergency medicine uh, continued to be a uh, you know, an exciting and meaningful profession to me for for decades. As a matter of fact, I practiced it uh, up until about 2000. Uh, and so I was uh, at the same hospital in the same emergency room for about 25 years. I was the medical director there. And uh, the interesting thing about emergency medicine, as I look back on it now, among many things, is how different it is from the work I'm doing now. Because in emergency medicine, um, one really has to take charge and make decisions and give instructions and directions. And uh, the opportunity to listen uh, in, in those settings uh, is, is not often there. And that's pretty much 180 degrees from you know, the work I'm doing now. But it has provided me a very broad base of professional information because in emergency medicine, you have to know a little bit or a moderate amount about lots of different things, every area of medicine. So uh, it really has provided me a good uh, foundation of information for the work that I'm doing now. Yeah, do you, that's a great story. Uh, I'm just thinking back and, you know, if you had more influence on all of us, we'd all be in literature right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're pretty close to that, though, Glenn. <laughs> yeah. well, I don't know about that. Uh, it would be interesting. Do you do any uh, writing still? Do you still have that interest? Do you, is there I anything? I have that interest, but I'm not disciplined enough to uh, to you know really do it formally. I do every now and then, you know, write down and uh, and try to make it somewhat literate, an interesting patient, you know, an encounter that I've had. But I don't do it on a consistent enough basis to. Um, to go beyond that. Uh -huh. what, when, when did you uh, get into palliative care? When did that happen? Well, that happened uh, as a somewhat fortuitous opportunity. If, if one doesn't believe, if one believes that there are no coincidences, then, then it perhaps wasn't fortuitous. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2000. I was still doing outpatient medicine, not so much emergency. I think I had kind of transitioned a little bit to more of, of uh, outpatient clinics, but it was pretty much the same type of uh, medical practice. And uh, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And as we had been talking about, you and I, just before we started the, the broadcast, uh, sometimes life presents you uh, education in forms that uh, you wouldn't have asked for. And this was uh, one of those for me. Um, it was very frightening. Um, it made very clear to me uh, what should have been clear, but I think our uh, sometimes our minds protect us, that life is finite, at least in this realm, um, that at some point in time, each of us become that name in the papers, so to speak. You know, when you're reading the papers, something always seems to happen to somebody else. And I had been fortunate and blessed throughout my life to, to have to avoid any major traumatic, either physical or emotional circumstances. And this was a uh, dramatic awakening, the fact that 
I am mortal. And the fact that um, one is not necessarily guaranteed a future. So with this opportunity, once I had the diagnosis and received treatment for it, I was provided an opportunity to explore that in the past and that which I hoped to have in the future. And I came to the realization um, that if I continue to do things exactly in the same manner as I had done them, that I, I couldn't expect very different results because somewhere in the formula of the life that I had led brought me to the point where I had prostate cancer. I don't know what component of that formula resulted in that, but I became aware that I couldn't just go back to doing things in the manner in which I had done them and expect to come out with a different result. So that realization really provided the, you know, the initiative and the motivation to begin to explore different opportunities. Just at that time, the hospital was developing a palliative care program. They knew me from being there in the emergency room department, and it just fell together that they needed a physician to champion the, uh, the palliative care service. And uh, it looked like uh, something that I could use in part because of my experiences uh, as diverse as they were in emergency medicine and because of some other things that I had pursued along the way that I think uh, served me well in, in what I'm doing now. Uh, excellent. I would like to uh, branch off for just a moment and uh, stay with the diagnosis, and maybe that'll segue us into palliative care. But uh, people always think that uh, people in medicine, oh, we don't get anything. We don't understand what it's like to be a patient. We don't understand a lot of these things, and it would be so great if we did understand that. So at the time that you had the diagnosis, how did, how did the diagnosis come first? I want to talk about the prostate cancer for some of our listeners sure. uh, brief, briefly, and then we'll get into palliative care, which we promised. How was the diagnosis made? Diagnosis was made on a routine PSA at an annual checkup. It was elevated. Uh, it had gone up uh, quite a bit from the one I had had two years uh, prior, and that initiated you know, the sequence of events of going on and having a biopsy. And then, of course, the biopsy results uh, showing adenocarcinoma of the prostate. I can remember very, very vividly the moment sitting there in front of the doctor on the other side of the desk and uh, asking me if I knew what the results were. I, I think maybe he thought I called the pathologist, but I hadn't. And he had the piece of paper there in front of him, didn't say anything to me, just turned it around so I could look at it and I could, you know, I could see in the, you know, the, the dark type script, adenocarcinoma of the prostate. From that moment on, I'm not sure I heard anything else uh, other than the pounding of my heart in my ears. Uh, uh, I was very frightened. In spite of knowing that prostate cancer, you know, if you're going to have cancers, prostate cancers, you know, are the probably among the best in terms of outcomes. But that was not what I was able to be in touch with at that time. And so it was, uh, it was a lot of fear, a lot of wondering of what about my future. 
And it's, it's, it's even difficult to go back and, and you know, talk about it now as, as highly emotional and as it was. But it was certainly a valuable experience. And like you say, to, to experience it from the other side, as patients do, I think that there's, there's no way, uh, the, no, there are no amount of conferences one can go through. You have to have that experience in some very close fashion for it to be meaningful. I think it's important what you said before, and we talk about this. I even talk about this when I'm being a medical guide. Even if somebody's just having a surgery, any kind of surgery itself, I always say to them at the end, you can't try and be the same person you were because that may bring about the same results. So I'm mm-hmm. very glad you brought that up. So now you, you get the diagnosis, your heart's pounding, you're going through a lot of emotional things. Now, as a physician, you know more than uh, a lot of people all of the opportunities and the various potential uh, treatments and therapies. And and as a physician, you probably know which one has the yin and which one has the yang. And how did you go about the process of figuring out all the different procedures and picking one yourself? Uh, well, I made radical changes. You know, I, I certainly pursued the different alternatives in prostate cancer, and you can certainly you can you can get far too much information. Even now, eleven years later, you know, I was just at Tumor Board, which we have every Thursday in, in our hospital, and it was just two weeks ago that a case of prostate cancer came up, and the different uh, physicians, the oncologists, the radiation oncologists, the surgeons, there is certainly on this issue of prostate cancer. We just don't know what the best treatment is at this point. Uh, but I chose a, a treatment, uh, but I, I didn't just choose a medical treatment. I mean, I, I wanted to have a traditional treatment, but I, I did many other things. I certainly changed my diet. I, I gave up, for the most part, you know, uh, meat and have maintained, you know, not a strict vegetarian, but a highly predominant vegetarian diet. I became very active in uh, practicing meditation, something that I had done sporadically uh, since I actually became a doctor, started doing transcendental meditation in the 70s and did it on and off. But uh, uh, when I was diagnosed, I began to become involved in a, a more consistent meditation practice. Uh, so I, I approached this from you know a variety of, of uh, avenues. I I met with uh, a non medical person, but uh, someone that has a lot of experience. Actually, she was a yoga instructor, Christina. You uh, perhaps would be glad to hear that. Uh, and she had a lot of other just very uh, a different approach. Uh, I, I think probably inclusive of many of the things that you, Glenn, and Christina are doing in in pursuing. Uh, health, wellness, from you know, from the basis of wholeness, and and incorporating, you know, different um, modalities and and lifestyle changes and uh, uh, levels of awareness. And so I would meet with her on a weekly basis, and and she would talk about where I was, where certain chakras were blocked, and things like that. So, um, so I don't know to what I can attribute the my fortune, my good fortune now, eleven years and. And my PSA is, you know, very, very low. Uh, but it was a it was a concerted and diverse effort to to do things differently and to take this scary and fearful opportunity 
and to, you know, to do, you talk about the yin and the yang, you know, for every crisis, there is the chance of a new opportunity. So, uh, so that's what I did in terms of the actual medical, uh, treatment that I chose, you know, it worked for me. And in, in terms of prostate cancer, I think that's probably the message, you know, get your information and make a decision that, you know, if you don't like to be irradiated, then perhaps surgery is, you know, your choice. If surgery frightens you, then perhaps, you know, considering radiation. Uh, hmm. <clears throat> how about family? Uh, how important were they in this whole process? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I can maintain my emotions and talk about it. They're tremendously important. Of course, you know, very supportive. It was actually my brother who made a phone call to a friend of his who was a urologist in Seattle that changed the direction I was going. And I was actually going to go for surgery. And it was my brother who made a call to a friend of his who is a doctor, a urologist. And he provided me a bit more information about an alternative treatment, which was radiation, actually what they call brachytherapy, which is radioactive seed implantations in the prostate. Uh, and so my family was, you know, tremendously involved, trem tremendously supportive. Uh, um, just, uh, you know, it was a difficult time when you, you have a family. My children were relatively young. My daughter was about 14 or 15. My son, two sons were, you know, younger than that. Uh, and the idea, you know, that fear that, you know, they would be without a father, um, you know, it was, uh, is a daunting one. So, so they were very, very supportive, um, and still are major, major, major parts of my life. Thank you for uh, getting personal with us and sharing some of that. I hope, uh, that inspires, I know it, it's inspiring to me. I hope that inspires other people as they move forward when they're sitting across the desk from the doctor. Uh, let's move into uh, palliative care now. Okay. So how about if you first give us a definition of palliative care? Okay. So palliative care is a new, relatively new area. It's a medical specialty. Uh, there are board examinations in it. Okay. And it's been around probably for about 10 to 15 years. When the realization came that, you know, we not only do we live our lives differently, we live longer now than we ever have before for the most part, but that same dimension of living life longer has created a whole new set of circumstances because as we live longer and differently, we now die differently. And so palliative care is the area of medicine that focuses on diseases that can't be cured or what we often call chronic illnesses. In theory, it can involve the understanding, the explanation, the management of diseases as simple and as common as hypertension and diabetes, diseases that we can't cure. But in the actual practice of it, we're dealing with more life-threatening, perhaps knowing life-ending illnesses. And so palliative care provides many dimensions to uh, involving people and families in that, in terms of uh, certain aggressive symptom management. So if you have an illness that can't be cured, it still may have treatment available to it, but not curative treatment. It aggressively pursues quality of life issues by uh, active and aggressive symptom management. 
uh, be it pain, shortness of breath, uh, whatever symptoms it might be. It provides uh, an understanding, you know, as you go through uh, courses of illness, the, the trajectory of the illness changes. You know, you go from, uh, you know, the, my experience of an abnormal blood test and hoping that it's not uh, anything serious to a diagnosis and the hope that you're going to be cured and the treatment that would hopefully bring that cure. But in many cases, you know, diseases can't be cured. And as the trajectory changes and the medical management that had been beneficial uh, in the past perhaps no longer provides that benefit, then people's goals change along the way. And so a large part of palliative care is providing information to patients about the, their illness, about what you might call disease trajectory, about what options there are as things change, and a better understanding of who the patient is and what the patient's values are. What makes life meaningful to the patient? Some patients would say that, you know, being alive is what matters most, and most of us would agree with that, but many of us would put certain qualifications to that in terms of what the quality of life is. Mm -hmm. So if we can have a better understanding of what matters to patients, what their values are, then we can integrate that with what treatments are available because treatments, all treatments that are available might, might not reach that patient in terms of what matters to the patient. And so we provide uh, information in terms of meeting with patients, including their families, uh, and have discussions about these aspects uh, about care. So palliative care involves aggressive symptom management, how I involve myself in it is more in providing uh, communication to patients to create the environment that allows them to live out their lives in the most meaningful manner to them. Well, that's a, a pretty good explanation there. <laughs> I want to get into some more detail, but um, I'm wondering if, you know, you've had history in emergency departments where we always, when emergency doctors get together, we tell great stories and have all of these experiences. Do you have some experiences that uh, you have gleaned from uh, the palliative care part of your life that would help us to understand what you do more and how people should possibly consider that for themselves and their loved ones? Sure. Sure. Yeah, let me just give a little more context to it. So, you know, so we die differently now. Okay, what, what does that mean? Well, it used to be that 100 years ago, when we died, it, death came quickly in hours or days. You know, medicine didn't have very much to offer. Death came you know, from an accident or very often from an infection. We didn't have even antibiotics 100 years ago. The family at that time were the caregivers. You know, they, we, we lived in a nuclear family parents, grandparents, sometimes aunts and uncles. So families were the caregivers and doctors were minimally involved. They've only been able to offer pain relief really in the last two centuries. And so the focus of care from medicine was really on caring and what comfort could be given. The family were often the caregivers and death occurred not in hospitals or nursing homes, but at home. And then with the uh, advance in technology and science and antibiotics and anesthesia and surgical techniques and public health and vaccinations, you know, we, we live longer, but we die differently. So death now takes a longer period of time. Mm 
It can be months or even years that people are dealing with chronic illnesses. And the deaths, of course, happen more in hospitals. And it's associated with so many different aspects now that we're not part, that we're only now beginning to get an understanding and, and being able to deal with. So there's, as we go through the this prolonged period of living with chronic illness, moving towards the end of our life, we have now this opportunity to have multiple chances of suffering on many levels, physical suffering and you know, with symptoms and psychological sufferings of anxiety and depression, despair or feelings of hopelessness and you know, so, social suffering, you might call that, uh, where you feel isolated. You know, you get a serious illness and, and you, you're somewhat isolated as it moves towards the end. You know, the peripheral friends are on the periphery, you know, and there's a sense of isolation. And certainly financial burdens are a major part. And it brings up, of course, spiritual issues. What is the meaning of my life? Did I lead a productive life or a meaningful life? And it brings up ethical issues in terms of who makes decisions, okay, uh, utilization of resources. So palliative care actually focuses on many of these uh, issues. And, and, and let me tell you a, a recent consult that I have that I think uh, could uh, perhaps, you know, more poignantly demonstrate this. Okay, do we have a, f a few minutes for this? Long as you need. Okay. So this was a 58-year-old man that I met with two weeks ago, okay, and he had what we call end-stage emphysema, or COPD, a breathing disorder, from smoking. Smoked all his life. And when I saw him, he had been in the hospital five times in the last eight weeks because his breathing kept failing. He couldn't stay out of the hospital more than a week. He was really moving towards the end. And he appeared very, very ill. He had lost weight. And he was sitting in bed. And I approached him and introduced myself to him and asked him if he uh, you know, was willing to have a conversation. His doctor had asked me to meet with uh, him and his, uh, his family. And he said, yeah, you know, whatever, sure. He didn't make any eye contact with me. But we went ahead, and I met with him. I have my team of a nurse and a social worker, and we often have a chaplain on the team, and he was there with his wife and his 18-year-old son. And I asked him about, you know, what his perception was about the change in his life related to his illness. And he said, well, things have been about the same for a couple of years, and I looked at his wife, and she rolled her eyes up, and indicating, no, that's not the case. And then he said, well, I've had pneumonia recently, and that's taken my energy. And he really made no acknowledgement about the underlying disease of emphysema, which had led him to this point. And so then I said to him, well, do you need you know, help with any activities around the house? And he said, no, I, I can do them myself. And again, his wife rolled her eyes uh, and said, no, he needs help, but he won't ask me for the help. You know, he gets so tired and then he has to ask me, and of course I help him. And so I said to him, well, this must be so difficult for you. I mean, these changes in your life, that, that this lack of independence. And he turned and gave me a stare, no response. And I'm wondering, is he angry at me for mentioning that? Is it a dumb, obvious statement that requires no response? Is there uncertainty on his part, some inability about how do you respond to questions like this? How do you talk about this? 
So I then proceeded to say, well, tell me what you understand about your illness. You know, what have your doctors told you? Well, they don't tell me anything. You know, they don't talk to me. Well, is this information that you'd like to have? You know, sometimes you have to check in with the patients because you don't know where they are emotionally in terms of understanding and dealing with their illness. And so you want to respect their feelings and not provide them information that they're not perhaps ready for. But he said yes. He would like the information, and I told him about my concerns that he's this recent repeated hospitalizations were indicative of uh, a significant decline and that things were rapidly moving to a, a critical level. And so I asked him, you know, what, what concerns you most when you hear this information? And that opened up the gates. And he said, with a lot of emotion and anger, of course, on his part, well, I'm concerned about how I'm going to make house payments. And I'm concerned about that I've depleted my savings and my 401k. And I'm concerned about how is my family going to get along and where are they going to live if I can't make a house payment. And I'm concerned about who's going to take care of me if I get worse. And I'm about being dumped in a, a nursing home in the last days of my life and not being able to wipe my own butt. And he went on to talk about how he had worked 20 years in, in a, a business. He was a parts man, and he had to stop working four or five years ago because he became too symptomatic. And all those years of being able to provide to his family and having being vital to them and fulfilling his roles and his responsibilities and having meaning in his life, all this stripped from him and here he was you know really literally skin and bones with an oxygen tube sitting in a wheelchair and after that there was silence you know one of the difficult things in doing this is as a physician we like to do things for patients that's what we're trained to do you know we're trained to to cure and to help and, to t and certainly in the emergency room, I think that dramatizes it, you know, even more so. You know, we take action and we do things. And sometimes in, in this realm of palliative care, listening is the most important thing and being comfortable with silence because sometimes patients don't need to hear. They, they need to be heard. And so after he expressed himself and his concerns, we just kind of sat there in, in silence. And then we began to address some of the real concerns that he had. And the social worker kind of took it from there and, and provided them resources and, and about assistance, you know, of getting care at home and the wife getting paid for uh, doing some of the care through, through Medi-Cal and, and different things. And, and just the dealing with that on a very real and practical level, you could, you know, you could sense the relief that there was. You can see it in his face and, and in the softening of his voice. And so when we moved on to other things, we, which I try to talk about in palliative care, and that is who would make decisions for you, I ask you, if you couldn't make decisions for yourself? You know, when you came into the hospital, because your breathing was so labored and your carbon dioxide level was so high because of your lung disease it affected your you know the clarity of your thinking so if that ever happened again and major decisions had to be made then who would be the person to make them and he indicated of course his wife and i said well does she know what your wishes would be if things were deteriorating and he said yes and she said no
they had never really had a talk about these things. And so we provided that opportunity. And, and one of the things I like to include in these discussions is actual clinical information about the potential benefits and the burdens about uh, different uh, options of treatment, particularly things like life support and, and what benefit life support would or perhaps not provide him if if it came to that, and whether or not he wanted to be resuscitated when in, uh, when the end came. And so we, we covered a lot of ground in, in the meeting. Um, he didn't make decisions that I would have necessarily recommended, but that's not the point. You know, I meet the patients where they are physically and emotionally and provide them the information and the opportunity to make options and choices. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we provided him as, you know, I know we provided his wife uh, and as well as himself a major service because I was struck by a comment that she made at the end of the meeting that how for so many years in dealing with this illness, because he had had this illness for many, many years, that they were going to doctors for his emphysema and how the doctors would examine him and they would prescribe him to his medications for it and how they would admit him to the hospital when his symptoms got worse and he needed that. And so many encounters over the years. And she said, no one ever told us what to expect. I had no idea about these things that I've had to deal with and have to learn until now, no one ever told us these things. And so that's, that's what a, a palliative care consultation, uh, th those are some of the components. And of course, they're as unique and different as every individual and family. And so while there's a structure I like to use that helps me access patients' emotional state and uh, provides them the information, each day is a completely unique uh, encounter. My goodness, what that's uh, quite an experience. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Goldman. I'd like to remind our audience that um, if you would like to share your comments or if you have questions for uh, our special guest, Dr. Richard Goldman, um, you can scroll down on the screen and there is a comment box that uh, if you... Um, have a question or a comment, you can put it there and press submit and it'll show up on my screen and I can ask it directly for you. Or you can directly call in uh, to our conference line, which is 323-476-3672 with the PIN number 454-380-POUND. Again, that number is 323-476-3672. The PIN number is 454-380-POUND. And in doing so, you can actually ask the question or make the comment directly to our special guest. Um, thank you, Dr. Goldman, for sharing not only the experience of what you go through in your day and in your profession, but also for the experience of your own personal health and journey. Um, it, it is so powerful when we as you know laymen who are not you know in the medical profession hears of uh, a journey such as yours here you are a medical doctor a professional in the industry that's completely immersed daily in your life and to have you share uh with full authenticity of what you went through and how it affected you and your family emotionally and physically 
and the magnificent changes you made. I think that that in itself is so powerful for each of us to hear and now to share a piece of your day. Now, I, I myself love palliative care. When I learned about it through helping um, elders and, and et cetera and having to work with palliative care teams, I am always honored to to be amongst individuals like you. There is so much to learn, not just about the medicine, but about life and choices. Um, and I thank you for your gift to society. That's magnificent. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. I, I, I appreciate your comments. The inspiration, though, that I get is often from the patient. Uh, I've seen you know, individuals and, you know, my circumstances pale by comparison. <clears throat> you know, that's not to minimize anybody's experience with serious illness and, you know, the emotional and impact of that. However, I, I see patients who are uh, far more ill than I ever was and are dealing with circumstances far more difficult than, you know, I would uh, ever want to, uh, and the the manner in which many of them, and of course, is all you know, is as varied as there are people, but there are some people that deal with this with such courage and such grace that when I leave the meetings and they thank me, oh, thank you, thank you, you know, thank you for the opportunity, I have to thank them because I'm not sure who has benefited the most from the meeting. In, in terms of my experience with with some of these people, it's just it's truly in, in, inspiring. Mm, mm. I always say, "What goes around comes around," right? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> it, it is. It, it's such a journey that that I think everyone takes, and and what you do, I, I, most people like this family that that you shared with us. There's so much fear because of what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so much fear because, yes, you can go online, you can research, but it's still, we don't know what is fact and what is not fact. And and I find, um, is it true that so many people are actually scared to ask the questions? Yeah, and, you know, and many times, you know, well, I have to get through the obstacle of, of the family. Uh, the family, uh, you know, we encourage, of course, family members to be present. <coughs> Excuse me. And many times families will say, you know, we want to meet you, with you, but not the patient. And they mm -hmm. want to protect the patient for fear that information will cause the patient to become hopeless. Okay, because many times we're, you know, most of the times the illness can't be cured. It doesn't mean that death is imminent, although many times it is, but we're dealing with incurable illnesses and the family will say, no, no, meet with us. We don't want him or her to know. And I found invariably many times I will do that. I'll meet first with the family in order to gain their confidence and, and credibility. However, I always offer the patient the opportunity and ask them if, you know, is this information they want? Ask them what they understand and do they want more information? And if they say yes, it is their right to have that and I'll proceed to meet with them. And I've, I've never found a patient to become hopeless with information because the information provides them a sense of control 
in the process that they're going through and provides them a sense of power. And control and power at a time like that is integral to one's sense of dignity. You know, so much as you're, you're beginning to experience at that stage of, of illness loss on so many different levels and to be not part of that process somehow just creates a grave indignity and information as difficult as it is um, empowers patients and so I've never found it to be the case of the fears that families have mm. that the patient is going to become hopeless and just give up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's uh it's interesting in our society, I think, where uh, so many, um, really, it, it's the fear of, of speaking about what we would like done if something were to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, so many in my age group, it, they, they just don't even want to talk about it. They don't, <laughs> they don't even want to go there. You know? Well, it's, you know, it's, this is, you know, a difficult topic to have. You know, I, I don't mean to romanticize, you know, you know, the dying process. It's horribly difficult. Okay, and it, it you know, it, it provides the opportunity though to experience it uh, on on a somewhat different level, on a level that matters and has meaning. At the same time, to pursue it, you know, on on a technical level, you know, with medicine and and treatment, but also to you know, to move into a somewhat different realm that really creates connections between patients and, and their loved ones, you know, to, to have that opportunity to engage on it on a very real level without having to pretend things are otherwise. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so it's very helpful. Uh, you know, the doctors, you know, we're very much like the people that you're referring to for the most part. We don't like to have these conversations, you know, and, and many doctors are uncomfortable. And, and that really is what palliative care, I think, has stemmed from, is that the need for these conversations and the need to train doctors in being able to be comfortable in having them. And so now palliative care is a part of medical curriculum in probably most medical schools now. So doctors can begin to have some sense of comfort. How do you talk about bad news to patients, okay? And, uh, and so doctors have, as I mentioned, you know, we have this uh, mind, mind frame that we have to do something, we have to do something. And uh, sometimes, as I said, just being present and being attentive and listening is really what's needed by the patient from a physician. Um, do you find that uh, you've had patients in the palliative care that, that have made a decision, for example, and chosen a treatment, and then after a certain time, whether it be weeks or, or days, that they choose to change the direction? That yes, absolutely, and uh, that's really one of the major benefits of engaging in patients that we know have incurable illnesses early on, because as things change, so can the goals, and so the goals may be to pursue an aggressive form of chemotherapy, <clears throat> let's say for a cancer patient, that provides them the opportunity of of slowing down the progression of the illness and perhaps creating the opportunity to live longer, and. If that treatment was not successful or the benefits are now wearing off, then we, you know, we have to sit back and reassess, okay, what's our next step? What are the options now? And so, 
if we can, uh, you know, initiate communication relatively early and maintain it. Now, that's the benefit of having outpatient palliative care programs. We don't have one yet, but they're developing them also in different areas that we can be a companion to the patient and the family, you know, through the course of the illness. And as things change and as goals change, then what we have to offer the patient, you know, can also change along with it. And so many times uh, we will, we'll, you know, have that opportunity, uh, you know, to provide the reassessment with the patient and allow them to make choices more consistent with the illness at that state, at that stage. And of course, you know, their own values. Uh, and uh, with with them with the knowledge that they can make choices and they can change what they've chosen, um, that must give the family a lot of relief. Absolutely, you like know, truly empowering it, them. It does it does as you mentioned? You know, we're so unfamiliar with this process. Where you know, a hundred years ago. You know, death was not quite as feared. It wasn't wanted, of course, but it wasn't as feared because it was much more familiar to people. And now, you know, most people have not seen, you know, a dead body except in the funeral home. Mm -hmm. And so being a companion to the patients and the families along this way is, is tremendously helpful to them. Uh, it's obviously the most difficult time of many of their lives. And uh, to have uh, a a number of resources to guide them along. And many times at that point is when, you know, it's the interface of palliative care and hospice. When it becomes clear at a particular point in someone's illness that pursuing active treatment is no longer beneficial, then the role of hospice becomes very, very prominent. And many times we'll make referrals uh, at that stage, you know, to a hospice organization. And they'll assume the, the care of the patient, you know, in the final weeks or months of their life. Isn't that very difficult? I mean, I, w I might find that a little difficult that I start off working with a team of people who are caring and loving and, and empowering me. And then the last days of my life, the whole team shifts. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, Where's my original team? Yeah. Well, yeah, in my situation, um, and, and probably in most palliative care situations, you know, we'll see the patients. I'm a hospital-based consultant, and so we provide that. And the resources that we connect them with are, you know, are often as outpatient. But many times they'll come back to the hospital, and then we'll have the opportunity to, you know, revisit with them, and again provide them the necessary resources. So uh, many palliative care teams are intimately involved with the patient, you know, while they're staying in the hospital and aggressively managing, you know, their symptoms. Uh, I take a somewhat different uh, position, not because it's not necessary, but just in, in terms of where I want to focus, you know, my, uh, my skills and, and, and my abilities is really in this area of meeting and communicating. And so I really can't do active uh, clinical management of symptoms uh, at the same time of being available to the, you know, three to four families with whom I meet each day. Mm -hmm. So hospice does a wonderful job, though, in most cases at that point in time. So uh, I think family members are, are, are very uh, accepting of them and appreciative of, of their work. Mm. Well, that's magnificent. Thank you so much. <clears throat> um, Glenn, I think we're almost at the top of our hour here. <laughs> And I know that you have another question that you need to ask. 
I have, I have a few quick questions. Rich, does um, insurance cover palliative care? Yeah. That, yeah. I'm a, you know, I'm a consultant, just as you would call in a cardiologist. If you need, you know, the expertise of a cardiologist, you know, uh, your insurance would cover for that specialty consultation. And so insurance uh, covers, uh, for the most part, uh, yeah, my consultations. Mm. We're speaking with uh, Richard Goldman, who is a physician who was an emergency physician, uh, practiced uh, family health, and now is the medical director for palliative care services in uh, St. Joseph's Hospital in Northern California. Uh, we always ask our guests, Richard, uh, for a special health tip, something that you on your journey have figured out, and you've had a pretty amazing journey, seen a lot of things. I'm anxious to hear what kind of a health tip you have for us. Boy, that was the most challenging part in preparing for this, and I didn't have anything <laughs> until until doing a meditation this morning, actually, and then it came to me. Isn't that funny? You know, I, I was thinking about, you know, saying, you know, eat more vegetables or things like that. Uh, and so here's my tip. It's take the stairs rather than the elevator. And that has meaning on many levels. Now, obviously, one is that it's physically healthier to be active and to move your bodies and, you know, to go up the stairs. But it also provides an opportunity to be aware of, you know, what we have often in our lives of uh, habitual and reactive behavior, you know, an automatic resistance to something that we perceive as uncomfortable, you know, we don't want to do. And so... When you're faced with the choice of the elevator or the stairs, one would naturally say the elevator, but that's an opportunity to say, to encounter, you know, a, a certain reactivity that may just be habitual. So taking the stairs rather than the elevator provides us that opportunity to encounter resistive uh, or reactive habitual behavior. Um, and taking the stairs rather than the elevator can serve as a metaphor for life, and that is to be engaged in it. Because each day, you know, I see people who are in circumstances, you know, they're moving towards the end of their life, and so that provides me each day a reminder of how blessed I am, how grateful I am, how all that I have in my life, and, and to be aware of that, and that the issue is not that we should be fearful of death, but that to be in celebration of life and that how we want to live the life from moment to moment and that the choices and the options that we have, the things that matter, uh, really demand us to be actively engaged in our lives and consciously engaged. And so take the stairs rather than the elevator, uh, however you want to, on whatever level you want to interpret that, that's going to be my medical tip for the day. And that's a beautiful one. Is there any? And thank you for that. Uh, is there anything that uh, you haven't mentioned that you do want to mention to us, or we've covered everything, or we could look forward to uh, another show with you at some point? Uh, I, th I think uh, pretty much covered the, the highlights of this, and I thanks for the opportunity. I hope that uh, people find it uh, helpful and informative. I think no question about that. I would like to thank our very special guest, Dr. Richard Goldman, uh, the Medical Services Director of uh, Palliative Care, for sharing his wisdom and expertise on his journey. 
I'd like to thank all of my teachers and all of my healers to allow me to be on the journey that I'm on. And thank you, Christina. I'm looking forward to meeting with all of you next week as we search on Magical, magical Medical Tour through another uh, quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, thank you very much, Richard, and I wish everyone optimal health. Thank, thank you, you very, thank you thank very you, much. Oh, it's been an honor having you on our show, Dr. Goldman, and thank you. and sharing your journey, which uh, we're so grateful to you, really, and your team. So, <laughs> thank you. We hope to have you back on. We'll think of something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us on this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live every Tuesday for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1.30 Eastern Time. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. You can also contact Dr. Glenn Woolman at myyogahub.com forward slash gwoolman or follow him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman and of course through his own website, glennwoolman.com, where we do encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. Until we meet again, namaste. Namaste.